Live from Southern California, this is the Jim Rome Show. So, the road to Las Vegas ends this evening. The NFL draft is here. After months of planning and prep, you would think that coming into tonight, everything would be all buttoned up and ready to roll. Yet, they sure as hell are not. They're not buttoned up. They're not ready to roll. I think they're ready for anything at all because anything and everything is going to happen. If anybody tells you right now they know what's going to happen, they're lying. They're a liar. liar. And a felon. Good job, Alvin. See, that's when Alvin's on his game. He knows where I'm going before I go there. If they tell you, if anybody anywhere tells you they know what's going to happen tonight, they are a liar and a felon. I got nothing to hide, so come on over, officers. The biggest question going into tonight is not about Trayvon Walker v. Aiden Hutchinson or Malik Willis versus Kenny Pickett. The biggest question to me is, will the Queen make another appearance? Will Danica be there tonight as she was a year ago? So tonight, to celebrate our fans, we're going to have... An NFL fan from out here that's backstage come up to this stage for each draft pick tonight and sit in that chair, which is a chair I did the draft from in 2020. So I'm going to let Jarvis and Bernie pick the Jaguar fan who comes up first. Guys, go for it. All right, we got a winner. We got a winner. The 2021 NFL draft is now officially open. Boy, Rod, he is smooth, isn't he? The commissioner is really smooth. Rob Manford can't believe how smooth that guy is. Danica, though, the queen. You don't have a winner. You got a queen. Our very own jungle queen, Danica, hosting the draft once was amazing. Her going back-to-back, though, would be insane. The ultimate repeat. And then again, why would you not run that back? Why should that not happen? She is the best thing that Jacksonville has going for right now. Ever since Calais Campbell and Jalen Ramsey left, Danica has been the only thing solid, the one thing holding up that entire franchise. Not only should she show up at the draft tonight, she ought to host the whole damn thing. She ought to be the first pick. Honestly, at this point, If Jacksonville selected her number one overall, I would not be surprised at all because that's how weird this draft is. As of this moment, it's not even a lock as to who's going to go number one overall. That normally is a foregone conclusion at this point. In fact, in some years, the team already has agreed to a contract with that first pick before the draft even starts. Not this year. There's nothing like that this year. There's not that sexy, sure thing pick at the top of the draft. There is not a Trevor Lawrence or a Joe Burrow or a Kyler Murray sitting at the very top. There's not even a Baker Mayfield. Although the actual Baker Mayfield could have a new team by the time the weekend is over. That would not surprise me at all. It feels a lot more like that Eric Fisher, Luke Jokel draft than any of the recent drafts. And I say that with the utmost respect to those two very large men. 
as one NFL executive told Charles Robinson, quote, this bleep is unreal, man. No one has a clue. Going to be a fun weekend. End of quote. And the confusion only starts at the top of the draft. For instance, if the multiple reports about the Jags are to be believed, they are fighting amongst themselves over who to take. Because of course they are. They're the Jags. The despised GM, Trent Baalke, reportedly wants Trayvon Walker. The new head coach, Doug Peterson, reportedly wants to go with an offensive lineman. Almost everything points to Jacksonville taking Walker, but that is not a lock. And even if that is the direction they want to go in, it's not a great look that there are reports of a split organization on the number one pick. Now, I'm not going to say that there's not going to be internal debate. That's healthy. Debate's good. It happens in every single draft room. But if you're the Jags and you have looked like an absolute clown show for the past two years, you can't let this debate go public. But that's why they're the Jags. That's the Duval way. And even worse than the debate going public is the fact that the debate is allegedly being argued between a guy who was so toxic he scared off a ton of head coaching candidates and a guy who was something like their, I don't know, fifth choice to be a head coach. In other words, Jags are going to jag. And they're going to keep on jagging because they're jag-offs. <laughs> See what I did there? <laughs> I mean, after all the turmoil of Pervin liars. Hey, happy hump day, Perv. Yeah, I know it's Thursday, but every day is hump day for you. After his 13 games, nice era, <laughs> 13 games. We did not survive the entire first year, Pervin. It's good to know that the new era, the new era of Jags, is going to be just like the one that came before it. At least Balky and Peterson know who Aaron Donald is, Pervin. But the unpredictability of the draft certainly does not end with the Jags. The thinking is that no matter who they take, the Lions want Aiden Hutchinson with the second pick. Played his high school ball in Michigan, played his college ball at Michigan, and would love to stay home, I'm sure, and play his pro ball in Michigan. He's not just a regional fit, he is an identity fit. A cultural fit. This dude will definitely cannibalize kneecaps. We're gonna buy so, you know, Dan Campbell off. already loves him. We're going to buy know the it. kneecap off. A kneecap and what? Whatever. Kneecap off. After that pick, all hell breaks loose. For instance, what does Houston do? Do they go O-line? Do they go DB? And what does that mean for the picks to come after that? Like the quarterbacks. The quarterbacks are wild. A quarterback could go in the top six, doubtful. A quarterback could go in the top 12. A quarterback may not even go in the top 20. There may not even be a quarterback that goes in the first round. Or there may be multiple quarterbacks that go in the first round. Or maybe only one, like, I don't know, 20th. And if people can agree that a quarterback will go in the top 20, nobody can agree, though, on who that quarterback is going to be. Is it going to be Malik Willis or Kenny Pickett? He is toast. He is wherever he goes. 
So eight teams have two first-round picks. Eight teams have zero first-round picks, which means there could be a lot of trades or there could be no trades at all. The Jets and the Giants have 40% of the top 10 picks between them. Debo Samuel could be dealt before the end of the night or he might not be traded at all. You see what I'm getting at? It's wild. The best team on the planet, the L.A. Rams, do not even have a first-round pick or a second-round pick. At this point, the reigning champs are not scheduled to pick until the 104th pick overall in the draft. And you know the Rams. They probably don't even want to pick that high. They've got so little regard for the first rounds that they're renting a sick beach house and they're dropping legit movie trailers for fake movies about the draft. What I meant to get to it the other day. Let me reiterate once again. That was probably the single best piece of social media that I've ever seen a team push out in any sport. It was that good. But as for the draft overall, the only thing certain this time around is that there is nothing certain at all other than it's going to be a complete bleep show, but in the best way possible. Or as another evaluator told Charles Robinson, quote, the biggest thing is nobody knows bleep this year. I've talked to so many people that feel this is the least predictable draft of all time, end quote. Here's what I do know. You want locks? You want sure things. You want sure things when there is really no sure thing in the draft? I've got a couple. I know exactly what's going to happen. Roger Goodell will be there. And he will be extremely awkward. And he will be booed extremely hard. And then he will try to make a joke out of it. And it will be one of the worst jokes ever. It will fall hella flat. Then he'll give out some super awkward hugs. And some super choreographed lame handshakes. There's some super hype players. Oh, and the fans. The fans will be pissed that their team did not take a guy that they knew nothing about five minutes earlier. And then after that, well, nobody knows. Anything can happen. Nobody knows. Let's bleeping go. One of the best weekends of the year. This is Vegas. I'll tell you what's going to be very disappointing to me. If the draft goes as scheduled, 1-32. to The one thing that I don't need to see, and I don't think it's going to happen, but the one thing I really do not need to see is the Jags select, Lions select, the Texans select, and it's just 32 picks. 32 picks straight with nothing. No trades, no crazy videos or picks released. Just a lot of over-analysis and guys with their dreams coming true. Man, I'll be so pissed. I will be so pissed if that's how that plays out. I'll be like, F these picks. F them picks. F them picks. F them picks. It's Vegas. It's Vegas. If that doesn't go down, you may as well have the draft at the Hyatt Regency in Canton, Ohio. Or the Hampton Inn in Hemet. You know what I want? I want... O-linemen in gas mask videos right before they're supposed to go. You know what I want? I want teams running out of time to make their selections. Sup, Vikings? I want jaw-dropping trades. I want Jets fan to lose his bleep 
on whoever they pick. I want Eagle fan to go 10 times as hard as Jets fan when they hate their pick. I want mispronounced names. I want Grinchy. When will he get picked? Aaron Rodgers, Brady Quinn moments. I want the Rams to do what they said in that trailer and steal the draft. We're gonna steal the draft. Trailer's so good. Is really slick. What I'm saying is don't blow this, NFL. I don't think I'm asking for too much. This is Vegas. Let's do this. Hey, clones. What do we want when we're craving protein and we need more energy? I'll tell you what we don't want. Bars, sugary snacks, energy drinks. Nah, we want beef, pure and simple. So where's the beef? It's in a package of Old Trapper beef jerky. Old Trapper is not your father's jerky. Shriveled, dry, tasteless. No, Old Trapper beef jerky is made from lean strips of steak and quality spices that are smoked over a real wood fire. So it's tender and tasty. It's never tough. So why is it so good? Because Old Trapper is a 50-year-old family business known for their relentless commitment to quality. In other words, they take smoked beef extremely seriously, and you can taste it in every single bite. Old Trapper is packed with protein and comes in four amazing flavors to satisfy all your cravings. Quality smoked meat at its finest that goes with you wherever you go, to the game, to the gym, to the beach, anywhere at all. So look for Old Trapper in the Clearview bag. You can see the quality that you're buying. Look for it in major retail stores near you. If you don't see it, ask for it by name because no other jerky compares. Old Trapper, what's your beef? Ben Golliver joins me once again. Ben, so good to have you back. Ben, how are you? Oh, I'm doing great, Jim. I'm down here in the bayou getting ready for Pelican Suns Game 6. It's a beautiful, sunny day. And no bad vibes like we were dealing with in Brooklyn earlier this week, man. It's such a relief. I love that. I love that. Although, you know, I do want to get into those bad vibes a little <laughs> bit later on. But let's stay upbeat. Let's keep it positive. Let me start first with Golden State. They finished off the Nuggets, Ben, last night. And five games into their playoff run and into Steph Curry's return, how would you compare the Warriors team to the ones at the start of the dynasty before Kevin Durant arrived? Well, um, and they have the same just incredible spirit, a great crowd behind them, obviously a huge home court advantage, which I think really helped them down the stretch. I think the one difference that you're seeing, though, is, you know, with Steph Curry being at a, a different stage of his career, being a little bit older, and he had to kind of work back from this injury. So he started the series kind of coming off the bench and then, um, you know, winds up moving into the starting lineup. They're still really ironing out all of the wrinkles and, and trying to get their chemistry right. But to me, the Golden State Warriors still have the highest ceiling of any team in the playoffs. And you can compare that to that 2015 team, which had an incredibly high ceiling. When they were clicking on all cylinders, nobody could stop them, right? If Steph Curry can kind of get back in the flow, if they can really commit to their new starting lineup, which is super small, super versatile, great shooting, and lots of potency while still having a really high, uh, you know, a high-efficiency defense, they're going to be tough for anybody. I think right now they've looked the best in the Western Conference. They're the favorites to make the finals in the West. And I think um, you know the only team that might have looked better than, than them so far uh, would be the Boston Celtics. Ben Gulliver is joining us. Ben, let me ask you about Philadelphia. How much pressure is there on Philadelphia and Doc Rivers in particular to win tonight and make sure they do not head back to Philadelphia having blown a 3-0 series lead? 
Well, it's funny. I mean, the history is on the line. Everybody knows no one's blown a 3-0 lead in the history of the NBA playoffs, right? And yet every quote that comes out from Doc Rivers seems to be talking about that history. If it was me and I had blown a bunch of 3-1 leads, I might just duck those questions, Jim, and not give any answers. Don't give people bulletin board material and don't have your team uh, thinking about the possibility of a collapse. It's a tough situation for them because Joel Embiid's dealing with this uh, thumb injury. And to me, he's allowed that to kind of become a mental issue for him these last couple of games. It seems like it's constantly bothering him. He gets really upset if he can't finish a lob play. It's like, you know, the injury is taking him uh, out of what he's able to do, and he's thinking about what he can't do rather than just, uh, you know, going out there and having a big positive impact defensively and moving the basketball and just sort of, uh, you know, trying to work through or work around that injury. Uh, You look at Harden, you know, the nice thing for him coming into game six he does have the extra day off prior to this game. Typically, he's better when he has a little bit more rest. And to me, it's just on Philadelphia Stars. People can make Doc Rivers jokes until the cows come home, but you've got to have your star players step up in this situation. Toronto's banged up. This series should not have gone as long as it has, and Philly really needs to take care of business. I'll promise you this. If it gets to Game 7, the pressure is going to be immense. That home crowd in Philadelphia is going to be on edge just like they were during Game 7 against the Atlanta Hawks. And that is a right situation, uh, you know, for a team to choke. And so I'm saying if you're the Sixers, take care of business in Game 6. Oh, I'm here for Game 7. I I could not agree more (laughs) with what you just said, Ben. I mean, 100% accuracy with that they that's why to me Ben they don't have to lose that series to blow a 3-0 lead if they lose tonight they've blown a 3-0 lead because then they've got to go home and then deal with all that pressure what about James Harden who you mentioned if you're Daryl Morey and you've seen what James Harden has done down the stretch and in the playoff series what kind of thoughts are you having about his upcoming contract talks in other words Ben do you swallow hard sign him to a big fat deal and hope they get a couple of good years out of him or could you see them deciding he's just not worth it Well, here's the thing. I mean, you have to have a negotiation. You cannot give James Harden this blank check that he was probably expecting when that trade happened. And same thing for Kyrie Irving. To me, both those guys should have cost themselves a lot of money in this year's playoffs. You only want to pay them like max-level superstars if they're performing like that in the highest-pressure, highest-intensity moments, right? And neither one of those guys has been very good. You could argue... Uh, A young player like Tyrese Maxey, who's making a fraction of what James Harden is making this year, has outperformed him in this year's playoffs. And when these guards get deeper into their 30s, Jim, I mean, outside of Chris Paul, who has like the miracle vegan diet, who somehow has the fountain of youth and is still playing incredible basketball, outside of him, players tend to decline as they get deeper into their 30s. They don't get better. And so I don't know what the argument is of let's lock up James Harden on a huge number until he's 37 and just expect that to go right. If I was the Sixers, here's the thing. I wouldn't feel the pressure to re-sign James Harden to that huge contract because I would just be able to spin it as, hey, James Harden was the mechanism for us to get rid of the Ben Simmons distraction, right? We don't have to necessarily sign up for a five-year deal with this, uh, you know, James Harden. If he's not playing well, at least he uh, let us kind of clean house, get rid of that baggage, and move forward and not have to pay Ben Simmons. The only way you can kind of double down and uh, make that Ben Simmons situation even worse is if you overcommit too much money to James Harden and kind of box in Joel Embiid for the rest of his prime with a guy who I just don't think is an elite uh, you know, contributor and, and uh, 
playmaker at this stage of his career. Oh, I don't there's any doubt. He's not what he was. He never will be what he was. His best ball is behind him. I agree with that, too. Ben Gulliver. But, Ben, generally, I agree with everything you say. Let me ask you this. You wrote a piece for the Post arguing that the Nets need a cultural reset I'm curious, what would that look like, and can they really have a cultural reset when Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving are not going anywhere for the next four or five years? Because can you see either one of them really changing? Well, I'll tell you what. I mean, I was only around that team a little bit this year, but it was for the ending. I have never seen a more mentally exhausted group in a long time. I think their vibes were arguably uh, worse than the Lakers' vibes, and that's not easy to accomplish. This is a situation where Kyrie Irving's, you know, drama with the vaccination, is he going to play, is he not going to play, consumed their entire team. And it got them into a situation where his personality and his erratic behavior, his inconsistent play wound up defining their entire organization. This is where you need to have strong leadership from ownership, strong leadership from the front office, and strong leadership from the coach to kind of put things back in order and to kind of have uh, Kyrie Irving focused on playing and trying to get his game back as opposed to doing all the stuff that he's talking about, which is, oh, I want to be a co-manager of the organization. Well, how has your management gone, Kyrie? Look at the last three years since you showed up in Brooklyn. You guys have won one playoff series. You've been uh, injured often. You know, he's played less than half the games for the Brooklyn Nets here over the last three years. Their roster is in a much worse place than it was two years ago. They have a whole bunch of free agents who are you know, potentially going to leave this summer. And let me ask you this, Jim. If you're a free agent and you've got multiple choices of where to sign up, are you really super excited to go uh, you know, team up with Kyrie Irving after the year that you just witnessed? Not at all. And so Kyrie's talking about we have to make some purposeful and intentional additions to our roster. Who are you going to get this summer? Nobody wants to go play in that environment where you have all of the pressure and superstars who aren't able to perform on that level. So to me, it needs to be a culture reset for the Brooklyn Nets. Ownership needs to kind of take back some of this control from their star players. And you could argue the only way to do that is to part ways with Kyrie Irving. Do I think that they're going to do that? No, because I think his uh, trade value is so low. But do I think that they should? Should they be trying to move forward without him? Absolutely. When he was out for the first two months, the Brooklyn Nets were the number one seed in the Eastern Conference. Kevin Durant was playing great basketball. Now, was that sustainable? I don't know. But I think it was uh, certainly a a better, more productive situation uh, than what we saw here over the last couple months when Kyrie was back. Ben Gulliver breaking it down for us. All right, Ben. So if Kyrie's trade value is at an all-time low, where would you put Ben Simmons' trade value right about now? And what's your sense as to what's happening with him? One of the weirdest things I have ever seen covering the NBA was people trying to convince me that the Nets won the James Harden trade by getting Ben Simmons. It's like they're playing video games, Jim, and it's just the theory, the idea of this big athletic forward kind of plugging in with their superstars got everybody so intoxicated. The guy has been a ghost for a full year. He has not played. Was I surprised at all that he didn't come back in the middle of the playoffs or didn't come back after the trade? No, no, no. His track record has been very clear there. He's clearly going through something, right? But, again, that's just one more situation where a team is being held up by him. I don't think that they could trade him. I think pretty much everybody else was wise, uh, you know, to kind of stay away at the trade deadline. And I think it's amazing that Philly was actually able to unload him, given how everything played out. Uh, the Brooklyn Nets got sold a bill of goods. They fell for it, and they're going to have to live with the uh, the ramifications of that decision. The guy who I feel so bad for is Kevin Durant because he's already re-signed with the Brooklyn Nets. 
and now he's got two of the most unreliable guys in the league as part of his big three. Good luck. I'm not afraid to say it, Jim. I'm writing these Nets off as title contenders for next year and the year after unless they're actually able to move away from Kyrie Irving. I just don't trust their stars to be able to be consistent enough uh, to play at a high level over the course of the playoffs. Look at how much young talent there is around the league that's coming to dislodge them. You've got the Boston Celtics. You've got the Milwaukee Bucks. Um, you know, I think even Denver in defeat, you know, showed that they could be a real problem for teams next year once they get Jamal Murray back. There are so many good younger players. The next generation is rising. Memphis, Minnesota, we're seeing some of their players take step forward in these playoffs as well. Uh, you know, to me, I, I think the sun has set on the Brooklyn Nets. Ben Golliver is my guest. Ben, I got to ask you about KD. Like, I could ask you a number of things, but normally, Ben, my advice to players would be never, ever feed the trolls on Twitter. But <laughs> KD seems to really love it and has unlimited time for it. What do you make of that? And what do you think he gets out of that? I don't know. I don't want to play psychoanalyst. I can understand it would be a really frustrating season all year long because these guys take a lot of arrows, right? And when you get to the end of the playoffs, and it's the first round, you're the only team in the playoffs that didn't win a single game, and you came in preseason as the title favorite. You had this big three with Harden that was you know, kind of this aspiring super team. Look, you're going to be frustrated. You're going to be upset. You're going to be wondering where did things go wrong. And at the same token, he understands that he's locked into the Nets. I mean, he signed his contract last year. He's not going anywhere. And so I just think it's a situation of guys licking their wounds, you know, and I think that they take it a little bit too personally for whatever reason. Charles Barkley is amazing at getting under these guys' skin, and they just can't, uh, you know, laugh some of this stuff off. I don't know exactly where it comes from, but I, I do know KD loves basketball. He loves talking hoops, and so I think that's part of it. He just wants to have his voice out there, and he probably tries to pick and choose his words a little bit more carefully during the regular season, but I'm not sure that's helping anything either. You know, if – I'm a free agent. I go back to this point I made earlier. Not only am I looking at sideways at Kyrie Irving, and not only am I looking sideways, uh, you know, at the Ben Simmons situation, but I'm also kind of wondering, like, um, is there anyone in Brooklyn who is capable of protecting Kevin Durant from his own worst impulses? This guy wants to play every single night, 40-plus minutes. He needs a coach who's treating him like Tim Duncan in his mid-30s and trying to keep the load off of him, trying to keep him where he can – you know, play deep into his 30s as opposed to just turning to Kevin Durant for the answer every time there's a problem, which is what Steve Nash does. You see KD worn out, exhausted. And if I'm a free agent and they're just going to bring Steve Nash back and KD just gets to choose how many minutes he plays, I'm trying to ask myself, well, why do we think we're going to have a deep playoff run next year? Kevin's just going to get exhausted again in the first round. They need somebody to protect Kevin Durant from himself. See, the thing is, Ben, we I tried not to – go to these negative vibes because you are in the sunshine, you're getting ready for the Pelicans and Suns, but it's all so fascinating, and you did an amazing job breaking that all down. What about tonight's game? I don't, I'm not telling you or asking you for your viewpoint from a betting standpoint, but I did put this on Twitter earlier. I took the Pelicans and the points. What is Devin Booker's status, and what do you expect from tonight's game? Well, there's been some noise that potentially he could come back. I think it's still kind of up in the air. If you're uh, Phoenix, you need to be careful, right, because – you're in control of this series. Now, this series is not over at all, and I expect this. This is basically the biggest game the Pelicans have hosted. Um, you know, I don't even know how long, you know, maybe a decade, right? I mean, they, they did win a playoff series uh, back with Drew Holiday and, and Anthony Davis, but, I mean, the, the stakes of potentially being a number eight seed, up, upsetting a number one seed, doing it against Chris Paul, 
I mean, this is going to have a very rowdy building down here, and it's going to be a really, really fun atmosphere. It's going to be tough for a road team to win um, in that building, is my point. Um, but I, I think, you know, your bet makes a lot of sense to me. Um, just because this team has had nothing to lose, you know, they walked in on the road in the play-in tournament, knocked off the Los Angeles Clippers, you know, didn't even really think twice about it. And they've been very uh, confident and steady um, so far throughout this series. The guy who I circled, though, is C.J. McCollum. You know, he's been a little bit up and down for them here recently. They need a big, stable scoring night from him. They've gotten great defensive efforts from Alvarado and Herb Jones. They've, they've done a really nice job of kind of containing the Phoenix Suns offense, which was amazing during the regular season. I think they've done okay on that end. But I think Brandon Ingram is going to need that second score to kind of help him out. And that's why I circle CJ as tonight's X Factor. I think if he plays well, your bet's going to pay off. If not, uh, sorry, Jim. I was going to say, if you're smart, you'll fade me. And you mentioned Brandon Ingram. <laughs> ben, one last thought. It's, it's, to me, it's just so kind of curious and funny that we're talking about Brandon Ingram and LeBron and AD are at home. Just sidebar really quickly, Ben. What do you make of Jerry West being more and more angry by the day and threatening to go all the way to the Supreme Court with HBO over their depiction of him in their show, Winning Time? The Winning Time show, it's fascinating. I don't know if you've seen this other show that came out, um, you know, all about magic. Apple TV did their own version. It's, it's sort of like The Last Dance. It's very polished, and, and it really tells the story of magic's life. It's amazing to me that no one talks about that show and everybody focuses on the dramatized version. You know, the, the people don't care about the documentary. They just want the sex and the drugs and the rock and roll of Showtime, right? right. So I, I could understand why if you're in that show, you wouldn't like your depiction. Uh, the Jerry West, uh, I mean, I don't know him very well, but I see him around. Uh, you know, obviously he's, he's kind of a, an elder statesman at this point of his career. Um, it doesn't really bear a lot of resemblance to the guy who was on the television show. So I could understand being upset about that, but it's sort of like with Kevin Durant. He just needs to turn off Twitter every once in a while. If I was, uh, you know, Jerry West, I might just cancel my HBO subscription and leave it at that. I don't know exactly where the outrage is coming from, but uh, I'm not sure he's going to win his court case either. But more power to him. You know, look, if uh, you know, you only have uh, your reputation in this life, right? I mean, that's pretty much what people judge you on, and if you want to defend it, uh, I'm not going to hold that against you. But you know, with the Lakers, like you're saying, and, and Brandon Ingram still being in it and, and the Lakers sitting at home, uh, you know, to me, I still don't second-guess the trade for Anthony Davis because it, it delivered that championship. To me, the banners hang forever. If you have to have three or four, uh, you know, tough years afterwards, as long as you have the title, it's still worth it. But here's the thing. The Lakers must move Russell Westbrook this summer by trade no matter what. If they do not, I think the direction that they're going is going to just continue to snowball. It's going to get worse and worse. And it could be a situation where that one bubble title winds up costing them seven or eight seasons, and you just don't want that. You need to have the clean break this summer. I saw he was deleting his Instagram, which is always a good sign that a trade is coming to him. I was going to say, I am also here for that. In the event that they cannot move him, I am here for that as well. Ben Golver is doing it as well as anybody does it right now. He's a national NBA writer for the Washington Post. He is an author of the Washington Post, NBA's post-up weekly newsletter, host of Greatest of All Talk and NBA Show. He wrote a great book, Bubble Ball, and a very good friend of this show. Ben, really appreciate you. Awesome, awesome job as always. Ben, thanks so much. My pleasure, Jim. Take care, man. And now a message from Discover About Rewards. If you are a loyal credit card customer, you should be rewarded for your loyalty, preferably with something that's useful, like cashback match, for instance. 
Discover matches all the cash back you've earned at the end of your first year. Finally, rewards that make sense. Discover, exceptionally common sense. Learn more at discover.com slash match. Limitations do apply. It is rare that I would ever say that a team with a 3-2 series lead is facing a must-win game, but the Philadelphia 76ers are facing a must-win game tonight. That is absolutely a must-win game, even up three games to two. The Raptors are the ones facing elimination if they lose tonight, but the Sixers are facing way more pressure. And most of that is landing right on the shoulders of Doc Rivers. And Doc knows it because a loss tonight would mean that they have blown a 3-0 series lead. It means they would have been up 3-0. They're now tied at three games apiece if they lose. But really, they're not tied at three apiece. They would be down 3-3. You follow me there? Because the noise about those blown leads is getting louder and louder, and Doc hears it, and Doc knows it, and now Doc is pushing back. Well, it's easy to use me as an example, uh, but I wish y'all would tell the whole story with me, all right? Um, My Orlando team is the HC. No one gives me credit for getting up against the Pistons who won the title. That was an HC. Go look at the. I want you to go back and look at that roster. I I dare you to go back and look at that roster, and you would say, what a hell of a coaching job. Really. I mean, um, the Clipper team that we lost 3-1. Chris Paul didn't play in the first two games and was playing on one leg, and we didn't have home court. And then the last one, to me, is the one we blew. That's the one I said, we blew that. And that was in the bubble, and anything can happen in the bubble. There's no home court. Game seven would have been in L.A. You know, but it just happens. So I would say with me, some of them is we got, I got to do better always. I always take my own responsibility. And then some of it is circumstances happen. You know, this one, let's win it. And we don't have to talk about it. You better. It finally came out, right? Like how many times has he gone over that in his head? How many millions of times? How many times has he said that to those close to him? It finally came out. The first part of that is awesome. Quote, I want you to go back and look at that roster. I dare you to go back and look at that roster. And you would say, what a hell of a coaching job. Really? End of quote. Like, every coach loves to talk about how they love every single team and every group of guys that they work with, not Doc. Apparently, Doc hates the 03 Magic team. Apparently, Doc has exactly zero respect for that 03 Magic team. I mean, he's practically up there saying, look at the absolute crap that I had on that roster. This guy's firing back. And he's hitting that entire Magic team with one scud and one stray and one Molotov cocktail after another. Like, I know what he's trying to say. I'm just not sure it's working at all. He might as well be up there shouting out, Hey, do people remember Andrew DeClerc? I had to play that slug 77 games that year. He started 21 of those games. I wanted to puke every time I put him on the floor. Like, y'all love your jokes about fat Sean Kemp? Yeah, well, I'm the one who had to run his fat ass out there 79 times that year. He started 55 games, and I'm pretty sure he had food tucked into his jersey for half those games. Fat ass. And yet you're coming for me. Hey, y'all remember Pat Garrity? Pat Garrity started a playoff game for me. Pat Garrity, have you ever tried to get a matchup advantage with Pat Garrity? 
The Pistons were rolling out there with Ben Wallace, Chauncey Billups, Rip Hamilton, Tayshawn Prince, and I've got to scheme something up with Andrew DeClerc and freaking Pat Garrity. I mean, that's essentially what the guy's saying. Look at that roster. And I would love to know what all those guys from that Magic roster who were minding their own business, living their lives, were thinking when they heard that drive-by yesterday. And for the record, as bad as Doc wants to make the Magic out to be from that year, they only finished eight games back of the Pistons in the regular season. I'm not saying they were awesome, but they weren't exactly the garbage that he was making them out to be yesterday. And not only that, they were up three games to one in that series. They were feeling pretty damn good about themselves. In fact, so good that after they took that 3-1 lead, Tracy McGrady actually said, quote, it feels good to get in the second round. You want to talk about an ice-cold take. And then Detroit comes back, and they win three straight by an average of 20 points per game. Credit for getting that 3-1 lead and all the blame in the world, not only for blowing it, but by getting blown out by 20 or more in every one of those games. This is how it goes. That's how it goes with the first time the Clippers did it, and that's how it goes with the second time the Clippers did it, and that's how it's going to go if it happens again. Except Doc's not going to get any credit for getting that 3-0 lead. The only thing people will remember is that he blew a 3-0 lead if he blows a 3-0 lead. Nobody's going to remember or care that his star center is out there with a busted hand. They won't care. And to Ben Golver's point, the fact that he's calling attention to it is just giving people more bulletin bulletin board fodder. So, Doc, I bet that made you feel better. I bet getting that off your chest made you feel better. Just know this. Nobody gives a damn. Nobody cares. And if you don't get it done and you lose and you got to go back to Philly for a Game 7 situation, there are going to be some puckered buttholes. It is going to be hot. Trust me, no one's going to focus on any of the excuses that you might have like you did for that Magic team. They're not going to care about Joe. They're not going to care how busted up he was. And I say this to somebody who likes Doc. I do. I like Doc. I've always liked Doc. I respect Doc a lot. I do. But if something happens once, it's a fluke. If something happens twice, maybe you argue it's a quinky-dink. If it happens three times, it's a pattern. If it happens a fourth time, it's a bleeping fact. And the fact is, tonight is the biggest game that Doc has coached since he was last in the finals because he cannot afford to lose tonight and have that noise. Not at all. You do not want to go back to Philadelphia for a Game 7. We know what happened the last time there was a Game 7 there. This could be so much worse. So much worse. I want you to go back and look at that roster. I, I dare you to go back and look at that roster. You dare us. And you would say, what a hell of a coaching job. That, that, that's an amazing thing that he just said. I dare you to go back and look at that roster and then not say that is a hell of a coaching job. I dare you to go back and look at that roster and tell me I'm not Pop, Phil Jackson, Pat Riley and Kurt Rambis all rolled into one. That's an amazing statement. Hey guys, let's talk skincare. Seriously. 
Skincare can be complicated, especially for men who have never had a skincare routine. That's where Tej Hanley comes in. Tej Hanley is a men's skincare company that helps guys start and maintain a healthy skincare routine by making the process uncomplicated. Every single box comes with an instruction card that tells you when to use each product, how much to use, and in what order. It is so easy and it's so effective. In fact, let me recommend this. The Level 1 system is the easiest way to get started, and it comes with all of the basics that you dudes need to take care of your skin. I'm telling you, for the longest time, I never even cared. But I know that I've got to be in front of a camera every single day, so I've got to take care of my skin. And Tiege Hanley makes it so easy for all of the reasons I mentioned. Listen, have you noticed a difference in the way your skin looks and feels? I have. But don't just take my word for it. Tiege Hanley has over 5,000, 5,000 five-star reviews on their website from customers worldwide. And because Tiege Hanley is sponsoring today's episode, they are offering you an amazing deal. Just go to Tiege.com slash Rome and you'll get 30% off your first box plus a free gift. That's T-I-E-G-E.com slash Rome. An amazing deal. Check it out for yourself and let me know what you think. It's a cherry red XR4TI, and I was telling Tom, aka Chalk, that when I got my Miracor, this is how the crew is named, the XR4TI, the car, if you look at it on the back, it's got a little label, XR4TI, Miracor. What this car was, really quickly, what this car was, really quickly, was a piece of crap. That's what that car was. But I got it as a college graduation gift. In 1986, and I've told you the story, when I went to work for my father, he said, for graduation, you can have a car, and that was not the plan, but they had gotten my sister a car in high school and not me a car, so they want to make it right with me, and said, when you graduate college, you can have a car. By then, I talked my old man into letting me work for him because I thought radio was a bad idea. True story. So the old man says to me, I've been thinking about it, and here's your budget. And I played it off like it wasn't important to me when it was really the most important thing in my entire life. Because I was a knucklehead, and I was young, and I I wanted shiny things, and I wanted a badass rig. So I'm like, yeah, whatever, Dad. He's like, don't you want to know? I'm like, yeah, 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 how much? He goes, 20 grand. I'm like, 20 grand? But I played that off, too, like, oh, okay, great. I really appreciate that. Love you, Pop. 20 grand. I go right to the BMW dealership. My dream was to own a BMW. So I price it out. He, he, and he says to me, you know, my old man, Boston J. He's like, look, this is no joke. All right. This is no joke. You go to work, you research how to spend that money and you come back with a really good idea. And don't you come back until you've put in the time and you've read every consumer report on every car and you make sure you know exactly what you're going to spend that money on. I'm like, hello, of course. So, of course, I did none of that. I went right to the BMW dealership, priced out a 3 Series, and I found out that I can get it for like nineteen eight. I come right back. I'm like, yo, Pop, I got it. He's like, what? I said, BMW. He's like, nope. I've, what do you mean, nope? Nope, 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 nope. My kid is not driving a BMW. You're working for the family business. The hell you're going to come rolling up in a BMW? I'm like, what kind of logic is that? And by the way, it made perfect sense now that I think about it. 
I'm like, you'd let me have a $20,000, you know, insert whatever at the time. Toyota, Hyundai, Kia, but not a $20,000 BMW. So round and round we go, round and round we go, which is how I end up with the Miracor. He says to me, I got a guy. I got a guy who owns a dealership. Guy I grew up with, one of my best friends. He says if he can drive any car, and he owns a dealership so he can drive any car. If I, drive, if I could drive even one car, it would be that over there. The Mercor, the XR4Ti, brand new, German-engineered Ford. Man, it's a bleeping rocket ship. It's a dream. That's your car, Jay. You tell Jimmy over there, that's the one. I can get you in that car. I can get you in that car for under 20 grand. I'm like, yeah, I don't know. The old man also tried to pitch me on a Saab. I'm like, yeah, I'm not driving a Saab. Biggest mistake ever. Should have had the Saab. Good car. So I get inside, get behind the wheel of the Miracor. It, dude, it's incredible. Bi-turbo, stick, all leather. Look kind of badass and funky for the, for the time. That thing was like, it felt like a fighter jet. It felt like zero to 60 in a second flat. Man, I was so badass. I love that car so much. You want to talk about planned obsolescence? The second that warranty ended up on that car at 15,000 miles, it went straight to hell. Every single indicator light went on when that odometer flipped over to 15,001. I hated that piece of crap so much. I told you before, I would get so enraged because I, I'm not good with cars. I could never fix what went wrong. Exactly. And I would drive to the dealership like bright-faced and red and furious and totally losing my composure. And they'd laugh. Man, these dudes working the dealership were like, hey, Rome, what's up, yo? What's up? I'm like, bleep you, man. And your car. Hey, we didn't sell it to you. No, but you're servicing it. We sure as hell are. And you're here every week. I'm like, they're mocking me. The guys at the dealership are laughing at me. I'm like, let me tell you something, bro. I hate you. I hate you. I hate the car. They're like, well, let me ask you something, Rome. Who told you to buy that car? Did we? I'm like, let me ask you something, bro. What do you say you get out a little blue book there and tell me what that car's worth? Let's see how we're doing here. Because I'm like, now I'm making threats that I can't back up. This guy gets out the blue book. He's like, what do you owe on that car, Rome? I'm like, 15 gur. Okay. Because the blue book value is 3,500 bucks. How you like them apples? I'm like, wow. So this is the story of the XR4Ti. That when I finally, finally took it back to my dad's guy, from Santa Barbara to LA, I drove in neutral all the way, like downhill. My guy took it off our hands because he was a good family friend. He admitted that a week later when he took it to auction, it blew up on the way over, like a block away. So the point of this story is, Chalk shows me this picture that this guy sent in yesterday of this beautiful red XR4Ti. And it's not shopped. It's not a photo taken circa 1990. Like, it looks like it was just taken. It's beautiful, like high def. I'm like, I, if you see a car like that on the road, it's a unicorn. There are none in existence. There were none that were drivable post-1991. Somebody, anybody listening own an XR4Ti Miracore? And is it still drivable? How many different engines have you dropped into that car? See, my point also, they discontinued it after two years. Two years of manufacturing. 
and that car was done. It only lasted two years. And you're telling me there's somebody right now who owns one in 2022, and they drive it? Incredible. Kevin in the PDX with that. Kevin. Kevin, my man. Bringing up horrible memories. Thank you very little. Kevin, Kevin, Kevin. Thank you very little. Craving some protein after a good workout? Do not make a shake or eat a bar. Grab a bag of beef jerky from Old Trapper instead. Why Old Trapper? Because Old Trapper beef jerky is tasty and tender and made with real strips of steak and quality spices that are smoked over a wood fire. Old Trapper is a family-owned business. They take their smoked beef extremely seriously, and you can taste it in every single bite. Like, who wants dried, tough beef in a bag? Nobody. It's like eating a shoe. Old Trapper, though, is the real deal, and it comes in four amazing flavors. Old-fashioned, teriyaki, peppered, and hot and spicy. So the next time you want a great protein and energy snack that you can have anytime, anywhere, grab some Old Trapper beef jerky. Look for Old Trapper in the Clearview bag. That way you can see the quality that you're buying. Look for it in major retail stores near you. If you do not see it, clones, be sure to ask for it by name because no other jerky compares. Old Trapper, what's your beef? Let's go to the dog. Not just any dog. He's a dog now. He's a dog. He's Paul's dog. Yo, what's up, Pooch? Uh, rim, rum. <laughs> if you ever need an athlete to interview, pull out my digits. For I'm the number one frisbee catcher in Houndtown. Uh, happy to hear it's snack off season. Busy bones are my favorite. <laughs> They're scrumptious. Hmm. Another fan of the season is Sandwich Snacker Man. Nice to see you again, Sando. Good thing Paul has a widescreen TV. Hmm. Looks like Snacks ate Randrew Bogish. Randrew. First word is Randrew. Right. After my last call, I heard Bella B in Calgary. Saying I should be put down. Belly, the only thing that should be put down is your fork. Belly is really good at the ATP. Hmm. If ATP stood for ate the poutine. Hey, Belly, what's your favorite flavor of round bacon? Goose or moose? So two things. <laughs> Number one, and most importantly, who the bleep is that dog? Lawrence, what's up? Hey, Jim, thanks for the vine. And uh, it's draft day. I'm pouring myself one. And since the queen wants me, here I am. So to the old rice jingle on draft day, tenderonies are Danica's favorite treat, loves her jaguars, and she'll be in a front row seat. On draft day, she'll come in hall, all in up on fireball. So, Queen Danica, that girl is oh so sweet. Ah. That's not a good call. No. You don't like that call. I don't like that call. Not a very good call. I love how Alvin just dropped that hammer right on that line. 
Daniel Jeremiah is my guest. DJ, what's going on? How are you? Dude, Jim, I love coffee in the morning, man. It's like it starts my day. I don't need any coffee today, dude. This is uh, I love this thing, man. The draft is so much fun. And this year, we don't know anything. It might be the most fun we've ever had. That is a great response to a question that I was about to ask, and I don't even need to. I was going to say, DJ, you're in Vegas for the draft tonight. What is the scene like in Vegas other than you not needing your morning caffeine? And how are you doing a few <laughs> hours before this thing kicks off? How are you feeling? Yeah, I feel great, man. I'm uh, I'm super fired up about it. I haven't even been outside yet today. I've just been you know, doing some media and and, uh, and looking over the notes and everything to get ready for tonight. But I just met our researcher downstairs to get some, some papers. And he's like, have you been outside yet? I'm like, no, man, I've been up here working. He's like, dude, it's already it's already starting to fill in. And, uh, yeah, there's, there's a buzz in the city, so it's going to be fun. So there's a million things we could talk about, and I want to get to some of this, but I am curious. What is the weekend like for you, especially when you get to the later rounds, after being on the air for so many hours on end? Like, what does that take from a prep standpoint and a nutrition standpoint to pull that off? <laughs> well, the, the, the move that I made a few years back is day three. I, I'm, I'm jacket on through round four. Once we get through round four, jacket's off. It's hot. Um, so we're going to, that, that's the first part of it. The, the thing we're going to have an, an issue with here, this is our first time doing a West coast draft, Jim. So normally like tonight, it, it would be dark outside when we get going now, you know, you gotta, you gotta figure out how to work with the glare on the computer that yesterday when we did a show, the computers were all overheating, um, uh, because this is bacon in the sun out here in the desert, but, uh, lots of fluids, man. Uh, lots of tea. I'm a, I'm a big tea guy. So. A lot of that chamomile tea to keep my uh, keep my voice as we go through these days. I see you work, and I understand this. That's why I asked the question. I think that's smart. We're talking to Daniel Jeremiah. So obviously last year there was no drama about the first pick in the draft. How would you compare the level of certainty going to this draft compared to previous drafts? You know, this this kind of reminds me of the, the Baker going one draft where, you know, it kind of came out of left field a little bit with Baker, you know, a couple days before. And you're like, okay, I guess this is really, I guess this is really happening. They are, they are going to take Baker, and you kind of went into it. And even though they're on the clock, and you've been told that it, it's probably going to be Baker, you didn't know for sure. That's kind of how this one feels. I mean, I think it's going to be Trayvon Walker from Georgia going to Jacksonville. It's everything that I've heard over the last few days, but there's still kind of that little part of you that's like, you know, I think I want to hear it straight from the commissioner's mouth before I, you know, totally believe it. So, DJ, to that point, and you've got that in your final mock draft, you've got Trayvon Walker going first. If you're Jacksonville, how concerned would you be about his relatively limited production in college and his pass rush win percentage? Yeah, the pass rush win percentage thing is is real, Jim. I mean, that would bother me um, because you could say, you know, with his alignment and how they used him, they didn't give him as many opportunities um, but when he did get the opportunities, he didn't do as much with them um, as the other guys. I think Hutchinson's win percentage is 27%. Walker's is 10. So that's a, that's a big difference. Now, this, this dude is a, he is a stud against the run. He's dominant. He's the best, he's the best interior rusher in this draft. You want to put him inside over a guard, he's going he's gonna to destroy those guys. Um, and then I think there's the hope that if you loosened him up and put him out wide consistently, that that is going to come. The production is going to come, but, Man, Jim, when I'm, you know, I, I really like him. He's my sixth player. But if I have the first pick in the draft, you know, I, I hoping and wishing scares me a little bit. Whereas with Hutchinson, I, I've already seen him do it. Right. Daniel, Jeremiah joining us. So, I mean, that said, it would make sense that if Hutchinson's available at number two, the Lions take him immediately. And then you get to Houston at number three. What are their biggest needs? And how do you see Houston approaching that third pick? Well, you know, 
the good thing about Houston is they can go in pretty much any direction that they want. I mean, their offense, I think they were dead last in, in rushing yards. I think they were 28th in, in yards passing defensively. They're 31st against the run. They're 23rd against the pass. They're 27th in sacks, Jim. They're, they need help everywhere. So with, with me, I kind of look at them and say, okay, if we have all these different needs, we can go in any direction we want. You can make a strong argument, okay, best player available, right? And the other thing I would say is Davis Mills showed a lot of promise last year. I mean, played well. And so if I've got these needs, why not just focus on one side of the ball with these first two picks? Get yourself a tackle, get yourself a receiver, and let's see if we can't become competent on one side of the ball. We're going to take some time to build this whole thing up, but let's try and build up one side of the ball first. Daniel Jeremiah getting ready for the NFL Draft. NFL Network's live coverage of the draft from Vegas kicks off tonight at 8 p.m. Eastern with the first round. So, DJ, also a lot of talk about Carolina going with a quarterback. How likely is that in your mind, or do you expect them to go offensive line? Yeah, I I expect offensive line. um, But, you know, and who knows what you believe when you talk to guys this last week. And and one of the kind of rumors that people are saying was, ah, you know, maybe the owner forces their hand and then comes in and kind of demands that they take a quarterback and, you know, how to shoot. I don't know how to rule that out as a possibility. I guess there's still a chance that could happen. Um, I think in a perfect world, uh, they get out at, at six, you get out at six and then you get some, some other picks. They don't pick in rounds two and three. So to be able to get some extra pick, then maybe you take your quarterback, whether that's Willis or Pickett, And now you have a pick, you know, in the second, third round, some extra picks, you can go get yourself a tackle. But for them to be picking first round and then the fourth round and you take a quarterback, um, man, it's just they have some other holes in that roster they're going to have to plug and they're not going to have any way to do it. Daniel Jeremiah joining us, DJ. In terms of quarterbacks, you mentioned Willis. I mean, what a crazy, crazy situation with the quarterbacks this year. Who Do you see Willis going first among the quarterbacks? And if so, how high or how do you see that playing out? I really think it's a coin flip. Uh, Jim, you know, I think there's a chance and the way I had it, there's a chance you get to pick 20 and Pittsburgh has their choice. Um, and I, you know, I, I, the teams that I've talked to, the majority of them have Pickett as the top quarterback, but there's teams that have Willis as the top quarterback. So I think they're two spots away from each other on my list, on my sequence list of how I graded them. So darn near identical. It's just, do you want Pickett to roll out there next year, which he can do? Uh, or do you want to be patient and wait with Willis, which could have a huge payoff? It's kind of dependent on where you are as a team um, and, and what you want with those two guys. But I think they both do end up going in round one. But I wouldn't be surprised if those are the only names we call tonight at the quarterback mm-hmm. position. Daniel Jeremiah joining us. DJ, what about Kayvon Thibodeau? Not that long ago, there was talk that he might go number one overall. What has happened to his stock, and where do you see him ending up? Well, I mean, I – there's still a chance. I mean, you talked to the guys this morning, uh, as I was, that think that, that Thibodeau still has a chance to, to surprise us and be the second pick over Hutchinson. So, you know, he could still be in play with Detroit at two. When it's all said and done, this would be much ado about nothing. But in a draft, it's pretty deep at edge rusher. Um, you know, to me, it's just, you know, he just slots in right behind those other guys. He's my 10th overall player. He's a really good player. Um but I just, you know, I think those other guys give you a little bit more uh, with, with what we've seen so far. So, um, you know, I, I feel like with Thibodeau, everybody wants to say either you got to say he's the best player in the draft or say he's going to be a bust. And I kind of fall in the in, in way in between there and say this guy's going to be a really, really good football player. I just didn't view him as a top three pick. 
Hmm. Daniel Jeremiah joining us. DJ, where do you come out, or what's your sense of what the 49ers, like you said, this time of year it's almost impossible to believe anything you hear. What's your sense as to what they might do with Debo Samuel? Could you see them really trading him? And if so, how in the world do you go about replacing somebody like that? Well, you can't replace him, Jim. We, we've done something for the last couple of years, and we're going to do it this year because I just realized it was pointless. But we would do this thing called like finding Debo, you know, where we're trying to trying to say, okay, who can be the Debo Samuel in this draft? Well, there isn't one. We we try every year. He's one on one. That dude's a unicorn. So, um, you know, you don't replace his role and what he can do um, if you're San Francisco. Uh, to me, and I know it sounds like that their demands were crazy high. Um, so they would have to come way down on that, and I understand why they're high. If you're gonna, if you're gonna hand the, the keys to the car over to Trey Lance and and your first time as a starter, and oh yeah, by the way, I'm gonna take away, you know, with him and George Kittle, you've got a pretty good one-two punch. We're gonna take one of those guys off the table. Um, I don't think that's a great way, great way to introduce him uh, into that starting role. It's one thing when you got Aaron Rodgers and Patrick Mahomes. Do you want to trade, you know, Devontae Adams, Tyreek Hill? Okay, those quarterbacks are gonna be fine. But this is a young quarterback getting his feet wet. I don't want to take away you know, one of the elite weapons in the NFL. I agree with you wholeheartedly. Before you go, DJ, we talk about the uncertainty and the unpredictability. What about value? Like when you look at the draft right now, do you see value yeah. in the second and third rounds this year? If so, how much? Oh, heck yeah, man. Uh, to me, the second round is the sweet spot of this draft. And because you're going to have, Jim, you're going to have the good football players are going to fall. And there's a chance that, like, Tyler Linderbaum could fall out of the first round. I mean, he's, he could be a perennial Pro Bowl center. Um, you know, everybody's kind of knocked on, knocked on Kobe Dean. He's not big enough. He's not this. He's not that. I don't know. I watch all the Georgia games. He's, he's the first one to the football every snap uh, and is the leader of that whole defense. He might not go in the first round. So it's guys like that. They're just they're some great football players. Um, that I think are going to be available early and early to the middle portion of the second round. Um, that's where I try and position myself in this draft. One last thought. You are a big Nick Benito guy, the former Oklahoma linebacker, <laughs> not getting a ton of buzz. First off, what do you hear when you talk to people around the league about him? And then what do you like about his game? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I get like I don't get love when I talk to people around the league. I think I'm definitely higher on him, and I'm okay with that. Uh, but this dude can bend, man. I, I think he's he's – Literally the best. Once he gets to the top of his rush in this draft class, I mean, he's in my 40s, I think, is, is, is my player ratings. But when he gets to the top of his rush, he can bend and flatten. Um, you know, if you're if you're scouting guys, Jim, and you look at sacks, if you just put like a hard line at nine yards from the line of scrimmage, those elite dudes can get to the quarterback and flatten under nine yards. It's I mean, anybody can do it when the quarterback drifts to 13 yards and you, and you get him. This dude can corner like a race car. What a great analysis. He is an NFL Network analyst. He is the host of the Move the Sticks podcast along with Bucky Brooks. You can follow him on Twitter at Move the Sticks. DJ, and a quick reminder, NFL Network's live coverage of the draft from Las Vegas does kick off tonight, 8 p.m. Eastern with the first round. I say it every year, DJ. I'm always shocked that you can find time to do things like this on the biggest night of the year, but you always do, and I appreciate you so much, man. Thank you very much. Have an amazing weekend. You're the best, Jim. When everything slows down, man, we got to get a Padre Dodger game in, man. We got to do that. You, you tell me when and where. I'll be there. Good night now!